Well, as has been mentioned, especially with that last song that we sang, uh, we are progressing through the story of Exodus. This is cool. Um, we're going to be looking at a section of Exodus chapter 4, so uh, you're welcome to go ahead and pull that up on your device or your Bible, whatever you have with you. Um, but before we jump into it, um, I wanted to acknowledge something uh, that's going to kind of become a theme for what I want to talk about. And it's the fact that the section that we're going to look at today includes a really crazy part, <laughs> a really weird part. Um, and honestly, being completely honest, when I started near the beginning of the week, when I started thinking through how to approach this, my honest, my honest first approach was going to be just to cut that out. Like, let's talk about the other parts and just, just snip out these three verses that are really weird, very, very confusing kind of disturbing, actually. Uh, that was my plan. My initial plan was, we're just going to talk about everything around it, because I don't want to, I don't want to have to deal with it. <laughs> um, but, as I've studied and prepared and prayed and thought about how to approach it, over the course of the, ne- of the next few days after that decision, an interesting thing happened to me, and I kind of want to bring it into the discussion, and I was reminded, um, I was reminded that if I approach the Bible, if I approach the Bible through faith and really do believe that every piece of scripture is there intentionally, and I do believe that, um, then maybe I shouldn't just snip out something (laughs) when I'm thinking about how to teach. Um, And on a deeper level, it kind of, um, two, two things came up for me in the process of wrestling, really wrestling with scripture, but also wrestling with God, I think, around it. Um, and I think these hard parts of scripture, this is going to be my theme for the morning is how to approach hard parts of scripture. And then also in more general, how to approach just kind of hard things about God and life. But thinking about scripture for a second, the hard parts of scripture are kind of a gift in a few ways. Uh, first, and this is my experience this week, the hard parts, the parts that are hard to understand First of all, they remind me of the importance of our own humility as readers of Scripture, right? Uh, sometimes it's just important to come up against things that just don't make sense in an easy way, right? Especially in our, I mean, I think humans have always probably struggled with hubris and arrogance, right? It's not unique to us. But I think in our time, especially because we have so much scientific and technological progress, it can be really tempting to... Um, think we should be able to make sense of everything quickly. Um, but these hard parts of scripture are a good reminder of, no, actually, that probably isn't true. Shouldn't o- overemphasize our ability to understand everything, understand everything quickly, especially. So that's the first gift is humility. Um, and then adding on to that, the second one that I was reminded of this week is that um, if I'm committed to respecting scripture, which ultimately is actually respect for God, right? Like, I respect scripture because I believe it is the thing that God gave us. <laughs> um, but but ro- really rooted, that that's rooted in, a, in an appropriate reverence, I think, in respect and fear of God, um, because God has given us the scripture that God wanted us to have, right? Um, so if I'm committed to that in the life of faith, and therefore I acknowledge my humility when I bump up against something that doesn't make easy sense, then the result of the, that tension, there's a tension that's created there, right? If, I res- if I'm committed to a respect and I come up against something that doesn't make sense, the fruit of that 
is that these hard parts cause me to search and wrestle, right? One, op- one way to, to resolve that tension is to give up, right? Is to just say, uh, one, way, one way we're tempted to do that is to snip out the parts we don't like. <laughs> Actually, that's a way to resolve our own tension. Um, or another part is to just give up and say, well, you know, I don't respect the Bible anymore anyways. These are all ways of just trying to get out of that wrestling match, I think. And what I want to say is that if, we appro- if we're reminded of humility as we approach Scripture, and God more generally, especially, if we're reminded of our humility, and then we come up against these things that cause tension in us, the, the fruit of that is wrestling and searching and tension, and that is valuable. That's the other thing I want to say. That process, that wrestling, that, that searching is in itself valuable for the life of faith. That is a gift. And in that way, these hard parts of Scripture are a gift. At least for, the, for me this week, it was a gift. And so, with that whole intro in mind, I'm actually going to do the opposite of what I was originally going to do. <laughs> and we're going to focus our entire sermon on the three verses I wanted to skip. Uh, so, I'm going to lean against my initial impulse to ignore this crazy story, and I want to focus on it. Uh, and I, I hope by the time we get to the end, because something I think beautiful kind of happened in my own process of focusing on it this week, and I hope that maybe, maybe with God's grace that can happen for us. So I'm going to set up, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to set up a bit of the context of what's going on in the Exodus story so far. Uh, and then what I'm going to do is put, just put those three verses, there's only three verses, so I'm going to put them up on the screen, give all of us a minute to read them, and then we're just going to take questions about it. Um, and I'll wrap, I'll try to tie it all together. So that's what we're going to do. Um, so some context. We're in the second half of Exodus 4 this morning, but just what's really quickly, here's what's happened. Uh, if you zoom out on the story so far, kind of the big beats of the story, Moses, Moses, who is the central figure, has been immersed into Egypt, literally like through the Nile, as we talked about a few weeks ago. He's been immersed into the heart of the empire of Egypt. He's been raised in Pharaoh's own household, and then I had a whole sermon on fo- trying to focus on him, his process of being drawn out. So he's been drawn out of Egypt into the wilderness where he's become a shepherd, where he's heard directly from, and he has wrestled with, right, to go with the theme, he has wrestled with the God of his ancestors. So he's heard this voice from the burning bush, the very famous scene. He's heard the name. He's heard this, this command and this commission that he's been given to go in, back into Egypt. He's wrestled with the call on his life, um, and in that whole time, as he was drawn out into the wilderness, he's also married into a non-Jewish, non-Israelite family. He has a non-Israelite wife, Zipporah, who was going to figure prominently in what we're going to look at. Um, and so, through all of this, Moses has received a strong call from God. He's received this commission to be the appointed leader of God's rescue operation for the, uh, the slaves in Egypt. And he's been told to go. So he's been immersed into Egypt as a child. He's been drawn out into the wilderness and received this call. And now he's been given this commission to go back to go back into Egypt to begin this whole rescue operation. So, that's the, the behind the scenes. Um, and as we get ready to zoom into this very specific event, all that has happened. We're going to zoom in on a specific event that comes in the process of Moses' journey back into Egypt. Um, and so, I just want to note really quickly, I just wanted to put a picture from the Prince of Egypt too. Um, uh, this is relevant. Um, because Moses has gone back to his father-in-law, Jethro, or Yetro, is I think the more Hebraic uh, pronunciation. That's the DreamWorks depiction of him. Um, 
And he has been, Jethro, a non-Israelite, gives permission for Moses to go back to Egypt with his family on this pretty crazy idea. And Jethro gives him permission. That's significant. That's a significant detail. Then Moses went back to his father-in-law, Jethro, and said, please let me return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they're still living. And Jethro says to Moses, go in peace. And so he's giving permission for Moses to take his daughter off back into Egypt um, with his family. And interesting detail, I'm not going to focus on this, but I wanted to note, they, they take a donkey. Um, that's a fascinating detail. And it, I could not help but think of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and Mary and Joseph on a donkey riding into Egypt. Um, it's fascinating connections in the biblical biblical literature. So, with this, in, with this all in mind, uh, on this journey, after he gets permission from Jethro, uh, they start going in towards Egypt, and this is where the crazy thing happens. And so, I'm going to put these verses on the screen. Like I said, give you a minute or two to read them, and then I just want to get your honest questions about what you're reading. So, here we are. This is in Exodus 4, three verses. I'll read it, I'll, I'll read it out loud, and then give you a second to digest it. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet, and said, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, You are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Makes sense, right? All right. Give you a second to read it, reread it, and we're just going to take questions. Okay, I'm going to leave it up on the screen. And actually, since I just checked the time, we're actually doing really well in terms of time. So I'm going to give you a minute to share questions with the people sitting next to you first. Sometimes that helps get the conversation going. So just try to stick to just questions. Try not to interpret anything. Just what, like, what honest questions do you have as you read this? Share those with the people next to you, and then we'll take some in the big group. So take a minute to do that. Take one more minute. All right, let's start regrouping. I just want to take, I just want to take, take questions for a minute. Um, I'm not going to try to answer them individually right now. I'm just going to take kind of all the questions. I have a list of questions here um, that I'll offer if they don't get mentioned. And then um, I'm going to, then I'll give some thoughts uh, after we get our, get questions out. Some, something's really, I think something's really valuable about hearing each other's questions because it can spark things in your own uh, reflection. So uh, I think I'm going to start, I'm actually going to start on this side of the room and just kind of work around. So what's a question from this this group? Genuine question. That's the only rule. It has to be a genuine question. Anyone? Why did uh, Zipporah do the one, was the one who did the cutting mm. when Moses was the Israelite and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the Jewish mm-hmm. nations? Good question. Why did Zipporah do the acting? Yeah. Um, here, question from this group. You want to jump in? Mm-hmm. Moses had more than one son. That is true. Yep. So why is there only one son highlighted here? It's a great question. Uh, here, this group. Maybe this is a bigger group, so maybe two questions from here. Yeah, that's the big one. It's like, uh, you just sent him back to do this. Why are you trying to kill him? Um, Kyle, what were you look like you were going to raise. Mmm. Ooh. Interesting. Yeah. 
Olivia. Why, what does let him alone mean? And you're pulling on an interesting thread, which I was actually texting with Danny about this because he's our Hebrew expert. Um, the pronouns are very vague. The him, right? Confronted him, put him to death, let him alone. The, the pronouns are very vague. So is it the son? Is it Moses? Is it what's going on? Um, but yeah, but why? And then why the shift? Like, what's that about? Um, uh, what about this section over here? Is there a question that hasn't been asked yet? Mm-hmm. Oh, when it says you are a bridegroom. Yep. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Good questions. Um, I should have said at the beginning, I'm not going to be able to answer all these. Uh, in the spirit of hard things causing tension, I'm not going to be able to answer all of them, but I think I will be able to bring some some clarity, hopefully. Are there other questions? There's a few others I've written down. Yeah, Linda. Why isn't the child always mm-hmm. Big question. That's going to be a big, big part of what I'm going to talk about. What does bridegroom of blood mean? That's another. That's a really weird thing to say. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple others I think. Other questions that people have not vocalized yet. Yeah. Yep. Real weird. Um, yeah. Why? Why the foreskin? Why touching to the feet? Yeah, that's a big. That's a big one. Um, there's there's one more I had on my list. I'm wondering if are there any other questions other people are thinking about? Well, actually, I have two more. Um, one question I had was why. Why death? This kind of goes with the why is God confronting him, but why is death the punishment? Because death is not, if you look in, this causes, this takes a little bit more background knowledge, but my best understanding of the Levitical laws is that it's unusual to require the death penalty, so to speak, for not being circumcised. That's weird. It's unusual. But the second uh, question I had is, where is Moses? What is Moses doing? He's there at some capacity because Zipporah, puts the foreskin at his feet. But what's going on with him? Um, yeah, go ahead. Yes. Right, right. Yes, yes. Why at this point in the story? And in the spirit of what I said earlier about every piece of scripture being in intentionally there, like it's intentionally there at this point. And why? Yeah, it's a great question. Last chance. Other questions come up? You didn't have a chance to say? Well, I'm going to do my best. Um, these are all very legitimate questions. These are all questions that came up for me as I focused on this. And so I want to offer some thoughts. And I do want to say, again, everything that I want to say about this is very much still in the spirit of my intro. This is difficult. This is a hard story. Doesn't make a lot of sense. I think it's impossible. I, frankly, I think it's impossible to give a nice, tidy, wrap a bow on it. Like, oh, that's what's going on. Now we can move our, we can, we can now go on our journey with God tension-free. I don't think that's going to come out of this sermon. But I do think there's something really powerful here. That is what I want to get at. 
knowing that I can't answer every question. And that's okay. That's actually the big thing. It's okay. It's okay to not have every question answered, right? Doesn't mean it's not valuable to wrestle with the story and by extension to wrestle with God and what God is doing. So first, I don't think it's clear why Moses is being threatened with death specifically right now in this part of the story. Um, some commentators compare it to a big part of the, the genre of Exodus is, is like a quasi-biography of Moses. So he's kind of an ancient hero. And there's a lot of ancient hero stories like this in other uh, literature of the time that have an encounter with a divine figure that nearly kills them as part of their journey to becoming the hero. That's a, that's a common trope. Some commentators think that might be what's going on, but but that is not necessarily clear. There's there's no, especially scripturally, there's no clear, this is why God confronted him now in this moment. But what I do want to say about that is I think it is very clear, very, very clear that there's something going on with circumcision. Circumcision is a really important piece of this puzzle. And in light of that, Moses' son uh, is obviously not circumcised before this encounter. That was very clear. This is a big deal. This is a big deal because if you know the story of Genesis especially, reread Genesis 15, Genesis 17, circumcision was what? Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant, right? God's promise to Abraham, right? So circumcision was the sign uh, that was given to Abraham that his lineage was supposed to um, carry out. Circumcision is a, is a literal mark. I'm going to try to talk about this without making all the men just cringe and wince this whole time. But um, circumcision was the mark given to the people of God. It was supposed to literally mark them as the people under the covenant that God gave to Abraham, right? Those who have received God's covenant relationship, it marks them out. It's, it sets them apart. Circumcision sets the Jewish people apart, the Israelites apart, um, in particular from Egyptians, right? And so Moses is going back into Egypt with a son who is unmarked, so to speak, by this covenant. Moses is about to rescue the people of this covenant, the same promise, like he's going in on God's mission to rescue them out from this empire, out from Egypt, who is not under the covenant of God. And the distinction, this distinction between Israel and Egypt is super important. And it's going to play out later. If you know the story, it's going to play out later in the plagues, right? Or the signs and wonders, as I've been liking to say. So when the cattle, when the cattle are killed, right, it's split between the Egyptians and the Israelites. This distinction is really, really important. So there's something going on here with distinction being marked by the, by the covenant. And Moses is, again, God's appointed person to take this mission out into Egypt. So something is going on here with the fact that Moses, the appointed leader of the Exodus that God has chosen, that God has spoken to directly. Remember the language of when God spoke to him was, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the specific God of this specific covenant, right? So there's something important here that I think part of what's going on is that it needs to be known which God is doing this rescuing of which people specifically, and circumcision is the mark that's given to these people by this God. That is crucially important. And it it seems to be a 
pretty big deal that God's appointed person to take this mission into the heart of the empire that is not marked by the covenant has a son who is not marked by the covenant. That seems to be a big deal. Now, I'm going to get into a little bit of speculation, but I think it's based in what we see in the text. It's possible, just think about this for a second, it's not, not for sure, but it is possible and plausible that Zipporah, who, remember, is a Midianite, it's possible she was resistant to the idea of circumcision, right? Just picture this. Again, this is, this is some speculation, but Moses is the lone Israelite who marries into this Midianite family, right? So there's, an, there's a family, tribal, lineage, identity thing going on here. It's possible that Zipporah was resistant to the idea of her family being not Midianite anymore and becoming under this covenant of the people of God. That's possible. Her son, she maybe did not want her son to be circumcised. Perhaps she was a little loath to fully under, enter under this mark of the different of the people of God. Who, who was her God before this, right? Was she worshiping a different God, a different deity? Was she resistant? I, these are speculative questions. Was she resistant to the idea of leaving her own people behind, leaving her own family behind, breaking with her family? I can't help but think of Jesus' words. Like, if you're not willing to break with your family, so to speak. There's, there seems to be something going on there. Was she resistant to put her son, and by extension herself, which when we talk about the bridegroom of blood phrase, seems to be connected. Was she resistant to this full conversion, right? Are we seeing Zipporah's conversion? Is that what's happening here? There's something significant related to marking and being willing to be marked by God. When, when I look at it that way, it starts, to, when I look at it that way, this crazy story starts to feel very relatable and pressing on my own heart. Like, this struggle, am I willing to be marked fully by God, setting aside other loyalties, other connections, to be marked under God's covenant, to be known as, this, as part of God's people, to leave previous allegiances and loyalties and, and fully, because this is part of the deal, are you willing to fully trust in God's promises alone and not others, right? Was Zipporah a Midianite who suddenly finds herself married into this mission to go into the most powerful empire and pull all their slaves out, right? Was she willing to trust that God was going to like keep them safe and all that? Was she willing to trust that this God's promises that Moses is talking about are going to come to fruition? Like, is this circumcision part of her willingness to enter into that fully? Can't be sure, but man, it feels like that's part of what's going on here for me as I read this. And if it's the case, this is another thing that really is starting to jump out of the story for me. If it is the case that Zipporah was the one that's resistant, and this gets to another question that came up. If it's the case that, think about this, if she was the resistant one, then it is fascinating and powerful that she is the one who does the cutting. She's the one who cuts the flesh. I think the fact that she acts so quickly, she just jumps into it. I think the fact that she acts so fast indicates, I wonder, again, this is, I can't help but imagine, right? Speculate a little bit, but imagine, enter the story, enter the, enter the minds of the people as much as possible. Is it possible that she and Moses had thought about this, right? 
They thought about whether or not to circumcise their son before. Is it possible that it was a known piece of their, I don't know, tension in the family? I, I don't know. Like, is it possible that she knew and had been struggling with this already before this happens, and that's why she acts so quickly? Whatever, whatever's true, whatever happened before, what we do know is she acts immediately, but she acts. She is the agent. She is the one who does the acting that results in saving Moses' life. She is not the first woman who has literally saved Moses' life already in this story. We talked about this in the very beginning chapter, right? The Hebrew midwives, uh, Pharaoh's sister. There are women all over this story who act and are agents and result in saving the hero that God has pointed, right? There's something really powerful here for me if it's the case that God, and this gets into the why did God confront, and again, we can't get to the bottom of that question, but I wonder if, what if God stirred up this confrontation to draw something out of Zipporah? What if God initiated this to get Zipporah on board? Because Zipporah's agency and Zipporah's partnership was important to God. What if that's part of what's going on? That suddenly, when I, when I encountered that, I started to see something beautiful here in this weird, crazy thing. What if this is a shift in Zipporah? What if this marks her change of allegiance to God, to the God of Moses? And I think this is supported by that really weird phrase that Betsy asked about, the bridegroom of blood. This phrase seems to, I I tried to dig into it a little bit. This phrase seems to indicate some sort of declaration of, well, blood and family, right? Bridegroom, obviously. Um, some, Some indication of declaration of unity with Moses. In the, in the ancient world, um, particularly with this circumcision rite in, in Israel, uh, there's a way in which the circumcision of the male was known to kind of apply to the, to the family broadly, like as an umbrella. It was kind of an umbrella move for the covenant. Um, and so it seems as though she is saying, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Like she does the circumcision and says this phrase. It seems to be indicating that, like, okay, I'm under Moses now. I'm under this this lineage, this blood, this covenant, this God. Um, there's something there about her as the agent, as a woman in the ancient world. I mean, this is this is this is we're so almost culturally blind to this, but this is a really wild scene of a woman acting and also making a de- declaration. Like she is like vocalizing the covenant language here. She's putting herself under the umbrella covenant application of circumcision to Moses and his family more broadly. She's coming under the covenant by this act of circumcision. She's joining herself to it. I'm also not going to be able to explain why she touched it at Moses' feet. Um, <laughs> that's, so weird. that's a weird thing. Um, not sure if this is helpful or not. If you want to know more about what's going on with the foot language, you can email me. There's, there's a possibility there's a euphemism there in the Hebrew. Or, or you can email Danny. That'd probably be better, actually. Um, oh, good. Yeah, so yeah, it's a euphemism. Yeah, there could be something else going on there. We'll just, we'll just leave it at that. Um, but I think the important point 
is when she says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me, it's her declaring, I am, I am with you. And by extension, I'm with God, with this God. Like, I am in this now. Zipporah is acting. Zipporah is converting. Zipporah is declaring her loyalty. And she's, she's putting real action behind it. And so as we end, before we shift to communion, uh, I want to highlight, just talk a little bit about, again, my personal experience of wrestling with this story this week. I already said this a little bit already a few minutes ago, but what I started with at the beginning, uh, <laughs> when I shifted to wanting to focus on this story, it's because I started to see some really beautiful and compelling things there that I hadn't seen before that resulted in, that resulted from my own wrestling. And again, I, I can't I can't explain every every detail here. But my whole honestly, this week this is this has always been a weird story to me. And I've gone through seminary, I've encountered it before, I've heard different interpretations of it. It's always just been one of those things that I've kind of been like, I don't know, I'm just gonna put it on the weird shelf, you know, like I'm just not gonna touch it. Uh, but honestly, this week it's suddenly become not as it's moved off the weird shelf into like the cool shelf. <laughs> uh, it's been something that I I actually see something really amazing in it. Um, and I only got there because I didn't ignore it, and I wrestled. Saw things I hadn't seen in the story before. And I'm okay not having every answer, too. I'm okay not knowing all the nuances of it. But just to reiterate, the centrality of Zipporah as an actor and an agent in this story is really powerful to me. Because it's simply, whatever else is true about all, all the speculative questions I asked, and what's true there or not, we can't really know. But what is true is that she acts... And she saves Moses' life. Zipporah, the Midianite woman, does the act of Jewish circumcision, affirms the covenant with God, and results in the whole story moving forward. And like I said earlier, if it's possible, if it's possible that one reason God initiated this whole encounter was to draw out something in Zipporah, then man, that is a powerful reminder that God sees. And a, a big theme in the Exodus is that God sees the marginal. God sees the, 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 um, God sees the people who are not considered people of importance or people who have agency. God sees them. I mean, that's, that's the whole Israelite nation at this point. They're not people who have agency. They're suffering. They're excluded. They're oppressed. God sees all of those people. God sees Zipporah. God sees and loves Zipporah. God wants to include her in this mission. He sees, if she is resistant, he sees her resistance. He sees her personality. He loves her. He wants to fold her in. And not only does, by acting this way, does, not only does he include her, but he lets her play a pretty pivotal role. A really important role. I had a friend um, named Bruce who used to tell this, and someone in jest, he used to say that um, he was, uh, he, he, um, I think it was in middle school or high school, he was in a play. And he got, he was super disappointed because he got, like, a really dumb part. Uh, he didn't get cast with any lines. All he had to do, the only part he could get was he would walk, on one part in the play, he walked on the stage, and another character asked him where the main character was, and he had to point. <laughs> that was the one thing he did. And he was really upset at first. But then he realized, he was like, I could actually really mess up this story. I could just point in a different direction. Uh, and he realized that he had a really pivotal part to play, even though at first it felt so minor. So I couldn't help but think about that when I'm thinking about this role. Like Zipporah, it's, it's three verses, but man, it's important. This is an important thing she does. 
And so, man, I really believe, I believe there's something there for us today, especially if you feel like you're on the margin in some way, if you feel like you don't have anything to give, if you feel like you don't have any power or agency, if you feel overlooked, I don't know, you don't feel particularly talented or something, I don't know what it is for you. Um, Man, just think think about Zipporah. Because I, I really do believe that God sees you just like he saw her. God loves you and would love for you to be folded into what God is doing to act in the grand story that God is unfolding. Man, I really believe that. I don't know what role we're all supposed to play, but man, I, I really believe God wants to include you in it in a way like support it in a way that you act and play a role and man this is this is an amazing thing to to grapple with on its face um but the second thing i want to highlight now as we get really do get near the end <laughs> um i also want to say that it's amazing to me that the story was included in the final telling that we have. Just think about that for a second. And I've said this before, but papyrus writing materials, they were like very rare in the ancient world. You did not, from a purely economic resource angle, you did not waste paper and ink when you preserved stories that were going to be handed down. I can very easily imagine some scribe somewhere saying, can we just, like, cut this part out? Like, you know, let's save some paper. We can maybe increase our margins a little bit. Um, like, let's just get rid of it. What, is it. what does it contribute? I can just imagine that, right? But it's here. It's still here, literally thousands of years later. That is incredible. And the very inclusion of it is what sent me on my own journey this week. What hopefully, again, by God's grace, has produced something in this this morning that we've wrestled with caused me to discover something more enlivening and beautiful than I hadn't seen before. So it's very inclusion as a hard, difficult, confusing thing had all this fruit to bear in my life, and hopefully our life as a community. And that brings me back to where I started at the beginning now with wrestling with hard things, not understanding everything, and that's actually how I want to introduce um, communion. Um, I just want to say that we can approach things we don't, we don't fully understand. And I think sometimes that, in, that includes communion itself. Yeah, you guys can come up. Um, communion, we do this every week, uh, points to the broken body, the bread points to the broken body, the juice points to the spilled blood of Jesus which is the very act, the culmination of God's action in the biblical story and in in history. The very act that we believe, as Christians, we believe ushered in redemption and rescue for us. God ushered in redemption and rescue for the Israelites in the Exodus, which points, points to the ultimate grand rescue that God is ushering out and ushered in through, um, through Christ's obedience and faithfulness. 
And I just want to say, I put up those pictures. I put up this icon of Christ's crucifixion next to the bread and the wine. I just want to say that sometimes when I approach this, I feel like I get it, like I can wrap my mind around it. And sometimes I just don't. Sometimes I don't feel like I get it, honestly. Sometimes I can't fathom the mystery of it, how this works, how this action, simple as it is, points to that action. I can't fathom how how it somehow is involved in my own ongoing formation and life with God. I can't I can't always answer those questions. I can't wrap my mind around it. Sometimes I feel like I get a little closer, sometimes it just it's a big question mark. But it's still here and we still offer it every week. And this still happened. And the good news there, I think the good news there is you don't have to get it. You don't have to wrap your mind around it. You don't have to answer every question. Maybe for you this morning, doing this is in itself a step of your own wrestling with God. Maybe in faith you can say, I believe, help my unbelief as you take this. You can say, I believe that this happened. I believe God loves us and I believe God is saving me, but I don't understand how it works. That's okay. The good news is that we can still proclaim this. We can proclaim God's love. We can proclaim God's actions in Christ. And the very good news, in my mind, is that his saving us does not depend on you getting it in the sense of wrapping your mind around it, getting to the bottom of every mystery, or always understanding how it works. And in fact, the act of confessing that you might not get it right now, it might be the very act that God uses to bring you into deeper relationship with him. That might be the thing that sparks a deeper journey of faith for you. So I encourage you, if that's where you're at this morning, if, if you're at a place of confusion, I encourage you to, to, to approach the table reverently, with humility, with a faith that wants to understand and wants to wrestle. Or if you're in a place of peace, I equally, of course, encourage you. If you're in a place where you don't feel like you have these questions right now, I encourage you to, to, to approach the table and know you're doing it with others who might be in a different place than you. I encourage you, wherever you're at, to prayerfully approach the communion table in this spirit. So if I could have um, one or two people come up and hand out the, uh, the cups. Sean, maybe if you can help and Danny, thank you. They'll bring those around. Um, go ahead and take one if you'd like to take communion. Go ahead and take one. And um, thank you. And uh, as you get it, you can uh, peel off the top layer. But wait, wait before I guide us through to take it together, because I think it's important for us to take it together at the same time. And I'm going to take us just through a um, an ancient prayer to approach to approach communion. And I'll indicate when uh, it's appropriate to actually eat and drink. But I encourage you to consider what I've said and receive, receive this prayer as we approach the action of taking communion together. So let's pray. 
God, our Heavenly Father, who of your tender love and mercy did give your Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, you made there a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the world. Hear us now, O merciful Father. Merciful Father, hear us. And grant that we, in receiving this bread and this juice, according to your Son, our Savior's holy institution in remembrance of his death and his passion. Grant that we also would be partakers of his most blessed body and blood, who in the same night that he was betrayed, he took bread. When he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, saying, Drink all of this, for it is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Let's go ahead and take the cracker. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul into everlasting life. Take and eat now in remembrance that Christ died for you. He died for you. And feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Even if you don't understand every question. Take and eat. And the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve your body and soul to everlasting life. Drink this now in remembrance that his blood was shed for you. And be thankful. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God and his Son, Jesus Christ. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen.